Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast, brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I'm Karen Skitzina, the Infant Medical Director of TIPQC. One of the things that I like so much about these podcasts are the interesting people we get to have conversations with about topics that can help improve care for mothers and babies, not only in Tennessee, but anywhere where this podcast is being listened to. Today's discussion will feature Dr. Marguerite Johnston. Dr. Johnston has had a long career, over 43 years, as a pediatrician in the Middle Tennessee area, both in private and group practices, as well as working in rural communities on a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Rural Health Project. She is a breastfeeding advocate. She's written a chapter in the Physician's Handbook on breastfeeding and has been involved in TIPQC projects over the years. Her interests include not only breastfeeding, but early childhood development, preventive health, and global health. She received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Tennessee Chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics for her work. As we kick off National Breastfeeding Month, it is our honor to have Dr. Johnston with us. Again, welcome, Dr. Johnston. Thank you very much, Karen. I'm happy to be here. Anytime I can talk about breastfeeding and helping mothers and babies and families get a lift I'm your put me in. So thanks so much for the invitation today. You are very welcome. Well, let's get started. Can you share with us about your career and with what sparked your interest in pediatrics? I have wanted to be a doctor since I was a little girl. I used to take care of children in the neighborhood. So my mother laughed about it and I think she hoped I would outgrow it. But the, the seed was planted very early on. Kids, I love kids and I love the mothers. I love families. Initially, I thought I would do family practice because that was the scholarship I had to go into primary care. But I just, when it came to grownups, really not so much. Those kids just give me joy, the babies especially. So that's how it started. And once I got on that track, it just felt like home. So there I stayed. Tell us about your interest in breastfeeding. Well, I was old school, not trained much about breastfeeding other than it's something you should do. It's okay if you want to, but, you know, there are other options. And then along comes my late life baby I had when I was 41, and I really wanted to breastfeed him. And I was scared to death. And so fortunately, I had a lot of support from the neonatologists that were in the area and their advocacy. They just said, Marguerite, you can do this. And 
I, they gradually led me along to where I got to where not only I was good at breastfeeding for several years, but I decided to become a lactation consultant. You may laugh at this, Karen. My friend sent me an electric breast pump at about six weeks because she knew I was returning to work. And I was afraid of it at first. I looked at it for literally two weeks before I gave it a try. But I've come a long way since then. I've tried to be as supportive within my practice as I could. And on the phone with parents on call and uh, answer questions from colleagues. Of course, you know, I wanted to give them the whole ball of wax, you know, why breastfeeding is best for the universe. But you have to approach people from where they are. That was a long, hard learned lesson for me. Well, I love that story. So it sounds like you came to breastfeeding in part because of personal experience. And I love how you talk about supporting mothers. You've also been engaged in several TIPQC projects. Could you tell us more about those in your involvement? Oh, well, I, I started with TIPQC very early on. I believe it was 2006. And I really hadn't thought about quality improvement in, in any sort of measurable way. You know, everybody wants to do better and, and see things work, progress in preventive health, but to actually have quality improvement program with benchmarks, I was like, whoa, this is something I need to hang on to. And I've enjoyed progress in the breastfeeding advocacy, you know, uh, getting the word out to physicians and mothers and turning over leaves that people overlooked or just assumed that could not be changed. So I've so appreciated TIPQC's work on breastfeeding. What strikes me the most are the, the tiny measures that end up making a big difference like thermoregulation uh, in the newborn period, to putting those babies skin to skin, making sure that uh, mother and baby have time to bond. And the tiniest component, just registering the baby's temperature and doing something about it, putting the baby back with the mother. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. It can make a difference in the sink, sink or swim with success at breastfeeding. Certainly helps bonding as well, too. I'm thinking back of the early measures for a neonatal absence, we were barely talking about that as pediatricians. Then um, 10 years ago, we were seeing it every time we made rounds. And TIPQC was right on that with the Land Do Study Act. Let's see if we can't change that. Probably the hardest thing for me was this, the Safe Sleep Initiative, because honestly, I, I didn't do it as a parent. But then I saw the data and I thought, we've got to change this. Old habits do need to be broken if they're not in the best interest of families and babies. So I actually presented to TIPQC on how to do both breastfeeding and safe sleep. And it is doable, maybe a little more challenging than what some of us have been taught. But that has made a huge difference. And since it's down in uh, Tennessee and SIDS and SUDIs and all those unexplained infant deaths are down since the Back to Sleep Initiative. That's wonderful. I wanted to go back to something you said earlier. You talked about wanting to support mothers and respect their choices. I wondered what advice you have for health professionals, providers, when talking with mothers and and how best to provide that support 
and inform them about best practices while, you know, understanding where they're coming from. You talked about the challenges of safe sleep and some of the practices that we know in the hospital help with breastfeeding success, even in the long run. How do you recommend that providers approach those conversations, perhaps when mothers may be coming from a different place? I try to respect the individual. I find the individuals, if they feel that you respect them, they're going to respect you more. I could have all the letters behind my name in the world, but if I can't talk to you as a person and, and hear your concerns, then you know the conversation is not going to make any difference in the long run. So what I would say, say establishing rapport is very important. If you can reach a family before a baby is born and encourage uh, breastfeeding education and breastfeeding support groups, that's an ideal world. In the community where I practiced, that was the exception rather than the rule. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you just have to, to go with the education that the hospital provides and then amplify that and encourage any small progress like the skin to skin, return to skin to skin for a colicky baby or perhaps change a latch. Let's see if we can get your latch changed so you're not hurting or acknowledge the mother that maybe like my age 41 having a baby that milk might not come in as quickly, but you can do it. You can do it and we're here to help you. I am so happy that formula packs are not given out as routinely as they used to be in the, the days gone by, because I do think that that gave the double messages to the family. Unfortunately, people are still giving gift packs out in their offices. I wish I could change that. It's a, um, I look at artificial milk as a medical indication, for instance, hypoglycemia or failure to thrive or persistent hyperbilirubinemia but not as an in-case, mother's milk's way to go. You've practiced in the outpatient setting, and I wondered if we could talk about a little bit more about outpatient support for breastfeeding. You mentioned several examples, support groups, for instance. I wondered what else, is there anything else that you think is needed in terms of outpatient breastfeeding support, either before baby is born or at discharge from the hospital after birth? One of the things that has made a difference historically, and this has just been the last several years, is asking providers to do a three-day checkup rather than the two-week checkup. I look back and think, what were we thinking waiting two weeks to make a baby and mom come in? So early affirmation and checking the baby to see how the mother-baby diet is doing. Groups in the community, some groups are just so supportive and, you know, right up my alley. For instance, the Leachy League was very active in my community. But I've been in other communities where that's just not people's cup of tea or not their circle of friends. So there are online resources a family can go to. And I've really enjoyed working with Cami Bug and are reaching our sisters everywhere. So people with who are diverse backgrounds have sometimes they have the same issues, sometimes they're very different. And I can't help who I am. 
but uh, having a, a sister out there that can help you show the way using evidence-based, she does too, can make a big difference. That's wonderful. And we can include those resources and information in the show notes. Thank you. So you talked about how TIPQC is wonderful in terms of using data to drive improvement and providing that quality improvement framework, the PDSA cycles. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how your involvement in TIPQC projects or other work has contributed to long-term improved outcomes for children and their families. Moms and babies. Well, the whole idea of quality improvement, I'll digress just a little bit. My dad was a quality control engineer, aerospace. So I guess I was a little nerdy, just like him in some ways. But he always told me to do the best I could and keep striving to do the best. Don't rest on your laurels. Keep learning. Keep learning. And uh, that stuck with me over the years. I mean, it may not be a lunar rover, but I'm going to try to help one patient at a time, but also keep an eye on the public health goals, the bigger picture, which is where I think TIPQC is so beautiful. Another digression, I'm afraid I'll forget to mention it. When you think how powerful the, the literature is on the information that breast milk can prevent necrotizing intercolitis, in preterm or ill baby. That's just like a miracle. And it took several generations, almost decades, for people to come around to realizing how powerful that was. I just did a quick Google search before you came on, Karen, and they've been talking about it since 1990, and it really didn't get uplift until QC and other quality improvement collaboratives really got on board with um, Let's let every preemie baby have some mother's milk, if not exclusive mother's milk. So I wondered how you think your work has contributed to long-term improvements and outcomes for moms and babies and families. Any examples? I learned quite a bit with the baby-friendly initiative and the best fed beginnings in trying to turn standard of care and a big nursery, 7,000 deliveries a year, turned that around that there weren't formula bottles in every crib that babies were taken to the nursery because the mother wanted to sleep. It was a labor of love. But after five years, it's supposed to be three, we made enough changes, particularly education from the staff in that hospital, where most mothers were being really encouraged and supported in breastfeed told how to do manual expression, given resources where to go after leaving the hospital. So I like to think that there was the before and after. I haven't researched the after, but I feel pretty confident that people, mothers and babies left at a better place after that intervention for um, baby friendly. I'm not sure I want that my legacy. I'd rather them just remember me as just a barking dog advocate for breastfeeding. So what pearls of wisdom would you share with our breastfeeding moms? I know you've made an impact on so many. I think the most important thing is not to give up and that every drop of breast milk is significant and important. You can maybe have your ideal of exclusively breastfeeding your baby 
and for whatever reason, your baby's unwell or things have changed, you don't get a long maternity leave as you thought you would, every drop of breast milk helps. And that if you get support along the way, you'll be able to reach your goal and perhaps carry on longer than you think and then support another woman coming along, a friend, a sister, a neighbor who is having uh, breastfeeding issues. So the more you learn, the more you experience, the better mother you'll be and the healthier your child will be. It's uh, really important to celebrate successes, right? And small mm-hmm. successes, like you said, every drop of breast milk, that's success. And it's important. I was also fascinated by your work in advocacy. You served as a member of the Nashville Metro Board of Health and helped advocate for everyone to hop on the bus, Nashville's initiative to support women's right to breastfeed in public, which placed ads on city buses. Could you tell us a little more about your advocacy work? So the Hop on the Bus campaign was very early on. It predated the Board of Health assignment. It seems really unusual now to think that there was a time when people could not breastfeed in public but there was a, a big shakeout in Middle Tennessee about women who were breastfeeding at the YMCA. And at about the same time, the, the temperature was right for advocacy with support from other national organizations where women do have a right to breastfeed wherever they're allowed to be. The mother and baby diet should be allowed to nurse and should not be in a restroom, which was the norm for decades. So um, this hop on the bus came, I, an idea I was inspired by a professor colleague of mine at Meharry. She had been in New Orleans, as I had for my training. And she said she had seen a mother breastfeed a baby on the bus. And she said, I want to do that for my child. I think I want to do that for my child. So we devised a poster, all volunteer army, and then shook the basket around the teen nap. And before you knew it, we had enough posters for a month or two for many city buses that circle around the areas of Nashville of the most need. So anyway, I hope somebody looked at them. And the rates went up that year and the year after. So maybe it made a difference. That's amazing. It definitely made a difference. And I think it's so important for us to talk about helping on the bus because many people don't aren't aware of that the law that protects that right to breastfeed. And like you said, any place you are allowed to be, public or private. So what other suggestions do you have for our listeners around advocacy? I think people need to be, if you don't mind, please, a little more on the point about putting the formula down and advocating for breast milk. It's just like if you saw somebody shoplift do you say something or not to me you know giving baby formula without a medical indication is not right it's a contraindication so if you see that in your practice in your community whatever just inquire you know why why are we doing this can we think of doing it some other way people need to be empowered that they've learned they've gone to tip qc they've got their ear to the ground in their career And just say no, unless it's medically indicated. That's great. And there's so much evidence to support doing just that and 
certainly our role as health professionals to help everyone understand that evidence and use it to make the best choices for their baby and in their practice settings. Karen, I have a question for you. What do you think about dispelling myths? Like, um, well, if you don't use artificial milk, your baby won't sleep at night. Or what if their digestion will never be complete, so you may as well just change now. It's not worth the, worth the time or effort. What do you say to that? Well, I think, think like you said earlier, if you just start listing facts and saying, no, you're wrong, that's probably going to shut down the conversation. So I think it's great to always start by telling me more about why you think that. Where'd you hear that? And um, again, it's it's our job to share our evidence that we know to and the facts around benefits of breastfeeding and and risks of not breastfeeding, like you mentioned, you know, I think trying to, we, we all learn, right, motivational interviewing in our training, trying to develop discrepancy. You know, on the one hand, it sounds like you've heard some pretty worrisome things about, you know, not breastfeeding and giving formula. But on the other hand, we know how great that is for your baby, how it can keep them from going to the doctor so much, um, you know, keep you at work. Where does that leave you? And at the end of the day, sometimes doesn't take one conversation. You know, I think that's one reason why it's really important to start the conversation before babies even born, right? Mm-hmm. Especially as pediatricians, I think we, we say that all the time. Oh, I wish we'd been able to have this conversation a little earlier because sometimes it does take more than one conversation and, you know, building that trust with families. Well, we still have a long way to go, but boy, we have made great strides through DIPQC. We really have. Well, you have had such an interesting career. I wondered if there were any other highlights that stand out that you'd like to mention and lessons learned. Well, I was thinking if I had like a motto or credo, whatever, and it's some people use it all the time. I just rely on that when I'm really feeling like I'm getting nowhere. And I say, you know, be the change you want to be in the world, be the change you want to see in the world, but don't be afraid to reach out and collaborate because it's too hard to do on your own. You can make a difference, but if you really want to change the needle, reach out to your colleague, your friend, and keep your ear to the ground. And before you know it, you'll get lift off. That's wonderful. I think that's my favorite thing about TIPQC is the opportunity and how easy it is to make those connections with other colleagues so you're not not alone and have the opportunity for, to learn from each other and be inspired from each other. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. I think that lifelong learning is something that if you're in an academic setting comes so pretty much naturally or, you know, you're required to, you know, so many CMEs. But if all providers could just sort of get that fever. I need to know more. I want to know more. Because when I first went into practice, you know, I thought I was pretty tough stuff. But people didn't buy my credibility. They had to kind of see it in action. So if you keep current and and watch what's happening with trends, like the back to sleep, for instance, and what's happening with neonatal abstinence and hypoglycemia in the first hours of life, you keep current 
then you'll be prepared for questions. That baby's got a low blood sugar. We're going to just change into bottle feeding right now. You, you know, you, you have your answer or your where you're coming from point. Uh, you'll feel better and more confident if you keep up. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Dr. Marguerite Johnston. It's been wonderful talking with you today. Anything else you'd like to share? Any final closing thoughts? Uh, Gratitude. Gratitude to this community and to the mothers. The mothers have taught me so much. I'm sure I was pretty hard-headed and didn't listen as well as I should have early on. But um, the mothers and the babies have been my main teachers. And I, I think anybody that's been in practice for a while would agree. Our gratitude to you for talking with us today. Thank you so much. And thank you. It's been my pleasure. I'm grateful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.